Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all the chicks back in the nest. Uh, I want us to think just a little bit about uh, just something that's customary within our culture as we meet people. And as I was thinking about that just even a few seconds ago, I was thinking about everybody that just came back from camp, okay? When you were there, you had an opportunity to meet some folks that you'd never met before. And very likely, when you went up to those people, you introduced yourself. You said, hi, my name is Todd. It's nice to meet you. And they told you their name, didn't they? My name is, I think it was Mr. Sam and Mr. Jacob. Was that another one? Girls, give me one of the girl counselors that y'all met. Yes. Say it again. Miss Alicia. Okay, so good. So you went up and you gave your name and they gave you their name and you had a chance to get to know each other. But you know that throughout the week, you got to know those people well beyond just what their name was. You learned things that they enjoy. You laughed together. And by the end of the week, you really felt close to those people because of what you shared with each other, didn't you? Well, that's true for all of us. We get to know people based on the life experience and what we learn about each other as we spend time together. But the reality is, is in relationships with people, the depth of the relationship is always contingent upon how much we're willing to let that other person know about ourselves, right? In other words, they know us as well as we want them to know us, depending on how much we're willing to reveal about ourselves. Well, let me give you some good news, okay? The good news is that when it comes to getting to know Jesus Christ, He wants you to know everything about Him. He holds nothing back. When you look at Scripture and you find out what He has to say, you will see over and over again, Jesus wants you to know who He is. He'll even go to some great lengths by telling stories and parables, and and He'll do things to, to connect with things that you can relate with that teach you something about who he is so that you don't miss out on something that's really important for you to know about him. In fact, that's the way I look at the I am statements of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament and you see Jesus make these statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. Every time he does that, he's taking something that you can relate with to teach you about who he is so that you can be in a more meaningful relationship with Him. So this summer, I'm excited for us to be able to go through these statements together with the purpose in mind of getting to know Jesus. And I believe what you're going to find is that He wants you to know everything about Him so that you can experience the fullness of the relationship that He desires to have with you. And so that's what we're going to do together, and we're going to begin that this morning. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you uh, for holding nothing back, that you want us to know you, that you have gone to great lengths to tell us who you are so that we can be in the most meaningful relationship with you as possible. We will find as we learn about you that there are things about ourselves that we need that you fill, desires that, that we have that you complete holes in in our heart that are God-shaped that you intend to fill with your love. So, Father, I pray that as we begin this morning looking at who you are and what you've revealed about yourself, that it would draw us closer into a more meaningful relationship with you. May we get to know Jesus as we spend time looking at what you say. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in order to get to know 
who Jesus says he is in the New Testament, I think it's probably be good that we begin with how God reveals himself in the Old Testament because there's an important connection that's being made in Scripture with the two. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 13. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so Genesis and then Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Just to kind of set the the stage for what we'll read, this is the conversation that God is having with Moses as he is instructing him to leave his job as shepherd and go to Egypt and deliver the people of the nation of Israel who are being held in bondage. Okay? And so this is that conversation. Let's pick it up in verse 13. It says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God, furthermore, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So again, this is the the conversation that God is having with Moses, instructing him to go back to Egypt and and to deliver the people out of bondage. And, And Moses is reluctant to say the least, right? If we would have read more, we would have realized that this is one in a long list of excuses that Moses has for God as to why he's not the man to do the job God's calling him to. And in this particular encounter, he's asking God about what he is supposed to say when the people ask, well, who sent you? Whose name? What is his name? God says, tell them, I am has sent me to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Moses, I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, I don't find that very helpful, (laughs) right? I am has sent me to you. I'm not even sure if that makes sense as I'm thinking through this, but listen to what he goes on to say as he clarifies. He says, tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. You see, the name I am that God uses to describe himself literally means I am he who is. Combine that with what he then follows and, and what God wants Moses to understand is that who he is is who he has always been. I am the same God and I am forever present i am he who is who was and who forever will be you see what's important to understand is that that moses and the people of israel they knew the name of god this wasn't a mystery to them But what God wants them to understand is that although generations have come and gone and people have lived and died, that the God that they serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has been unchanged, 
I am he who is. Now fast forward to the New Testament, if you would. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we find Jesus in what I consider an anxious conversation with the Pharisees. It's anxious because Jesus is trying to tell them about who he is, but they're unwilling to listen to what he has to say. And because of that, Jesus tries to explain to them, you're having trouble hearing what I'm saying because you're treating me like I'm one of you and I'm not. This world is not my home is what he tells Jesus in, or tells the the Pharisees in this passage. He, he tells them, you have a beginning. I do not. He, he tells them, you were born in sin. And you will die with this sin. But I have come from God, he says, without the stain of sin, so that you may have eternal life. As Jesus makes these claims, the religious leaders begin to understand what he is suggesting. And they don't like what they hear. It reminds me of the conversation that I've told you about before. Let me remind you again of the, the conversation I had with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi from Israel who was here for medical treatment in Lubbock. And I had the opportunity to invite him to my house along with a, a group of people to just dialogue with him about what he believes. We were having a great conversation, and I distinctly remember Nico Hamlin asking the question that was one on everybody's mind. He turned to the rabbi and he said, well, this is really interesting, but, but who in your opinion is Jesus Christ? Without hesitation, he looked at us and he says, we believe he's of Satan. We believe he's of Satan. Now, when he first said that, it shocked me. <laughs> and then I stopped and I realized, you know what? He knows the words of Jesus. He's studied the words of Jesus. He knows what Jesus said about himself. Because if what Jesus says wasn't true, the conclusion of the rabbi is the only logical conclusion. He's heard the words of Jesus. And the very same thing was happening with Jesus and the Pharisees when he lived. He was trying to tell them about who he was. And you know what? They were getting it. They understood what he was saying, and they came to the same conclusion. In fact, if you would, look at verse 48. Verse 48. See if this sounds familiar. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And, if, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Well, they know who Jesus is making himself out to be. They understand that the qualities he's using to describe himself are divine qualities. 
He is making himself out to be God. And just in case there was any question about that, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 58. Look at what he says, especially in light of what we looked at in Exodus. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. They knew those words. Those were the self-revelation words of God himself. I am he who is. I am the same God, Jesus is telling them, who is always present. And I am with you now, here in the flesh. There is no question in my mind that the religious leaders understood what Jesus was saying. Because if you read on, the very next thing that they do is they go and find stones to put this man to death. Because they could not accept the fact that what he said was true. Jesus was telling them, I am God. And they were unwilling to believe that that was true. Scripture tells us it wasn't time for for Jesus to die, so he hid and and slipped away. I tell you this because there is no mistaking that the most important attribute about who Jesus is and how he reveals himself is that he is God. I am he who is. Not a God, not a different God, not some God, but the God, the creator God of heaven and earth. I am am he who is. You see, without that understanding, none of the I am statements that Jesus will make in the Gospels make any sense. (laughs) Unless he's God, these are just empty promises that no mortal man could possibly fulfill. To show you what I mean, let's start with one of those I am promises and look at it together. Just flip on over a couple of chapters earlier to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As we look at this first I am statement of Jesus, I want us to know that it is you'll see when we go through these together that Jesus always makes these statements in a particular context that brings life to the statement that he's making about himself. And so I want us to understand that context a little bit. John chapter 6 begins in verse 1 by saying, after these things. Now, when Scripture says that, it's trying to help you understand what is happening when these events are beginning to take place. And, and so when it says, after these things, some of these things would include like the Sermon on the Mount. That's something that has happened. That's important because that's arguably the most important sermon that Jesus gives as he introduces the kingdom that he has come to establish. Some of the other things are some of the healings that has taken place by this time. The healing of the hemorrhaging woman. We also know that one of the other miracles that Jesus has performed is when he has raised the widow's son back to life. Died, brought back to life. And so in those miracles, we see that Jesus is is demonstrating his authority over sickness and even death. One of the other things that has occurred during this episode of time is the fact that John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. That is probably the most recent event that has happened in this context. And the reason that's important is because when John the Baptist dies, the uh, ministry of Jesus begins to take a more... uh, a, a rise where he becomes more popular to the point that Herod 
gets word of Jesus and has a keen interest because the people are rumored to believe that, 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 that Jesus is John the, ba- John the Baptist risen from the dead. Okay? So these are the things that are happening as we enter into chapter 6. And then in verse 4 it says that, that it was Passover was near. This is the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This too is incredibly important to what will happen in this chapter. This detail is important because that means, that tells us, it's a clue that says there is a large amount of people that are making a pilgrimage from wherever they live in the land to Jerusalem to celebrate this most important feast of the Jewish people. The other thing that it tells us is that these people will have Moses on their mind. They're celebrating Passover. They're remembering their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And all these people are traveling, even singing songs of ascent that remind them of this deliverance out of Egypt. And these are the people that are gathering in large groups to hear what Jesus has to say as his popularity rises. To the point, as we enter into chapter 6, that there are, it says 5,000 people, 5,000 men specifically. So estimates are there's up to maybe 10,000 people that have gathered. And this makes sense because the crowds in Jerusalem will swell to a million when it comes to celebration of Passover. So this is not unusual to consider this many people making that pilgrimage, but they have come to hear what Jesus has to say. Look what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 5 as this crowd gathers. It says, Jesus, therefore lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? <laughs> it's almost a little bit humi- uh, amusing, isn't it, to just think about Philip looking out of all these people and Jesus kind of making a statement about what's obvious to them all is, oh my goodness, where in the world are we going to get food to feed all these people? And we know from Scripture that, that Jesus is not asking this question because he's unaware of the area and he's wondering if there's a grocery store nearby. That's not his intent. In fact, the next verse tells us that he did this. He asked this question to test them. Now, it's important to understand that when the Scripture talks about Jesus testing the disciples, he's not testing them to, to tempt them to evil. What he's doing is, is he's presenting a question to help build their faith. And we know that because he actually gives them the answer. He says, these people need bread. How are we going to do that? (laughs) Well, we know from the passage that Philip actually takes Jesus literally when he asks about buying food, and he begins to do math in his head, right? And he says, oh, gosh, uh, let me see, divide by two. Okay, well, according to my calculations, Jesus, we're going to need 200 denarii to feed all these people at a minimum. And listen, that's just going to give them a few crumbs. That will hardly satisfy their hunger. Now, 200 denarii, that's a lot of money. For us to understand that, the wage of a daily wage was about one denarii. So 200 denarii would have been about an eight-month salary. So in our terms, that would mean somebody would need to be carrying around with them in their pilgrimage to Jerusalem about ten to $20,000. Okay? So obviously, the solution, that is not the solution to their dilemma, Right? So they began to consider other options, and we learn from that passage is while Philip is out trying to calculate math in his head, um, Andrew is seeing if there's actually any food that can be brought together. He's the one that comes to Jesus and says, look, I, I've been all around, and there's just not a lot out there. All I've got is, is these 
two fish and five loaves, right? That's, that's all I could come up with. And, and that's barely a drop in the bucket compared to what it's going to require to feed all these people. And so when it was all said and done, the disciples knew what the people needed. But every solution they came up with was insufficient to meet the need. Bread was the answer. Jesus told them that. But they just didn't have the means to provide it. So that's when Jesus said, okay, just tell everybody to sit down. Get them in groups of 50 and watch what happens. And we know this story. Jesus takes those, those five loaves and he miraculously multiplies them to the point that not only is everyone fed, but they are just full to the brim. They can't eat anymore. And the disciples walk around and pick up 12 baskets of leftover bread. That's how much there was. Now let me remind you. These people are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They have Moses on their mind. So let me ask you. What do you think comes to mind when they are miraculously supplied with bread that fed everyone till they were full? Does that remind you of anything? I promise you it would have reminded them of Moses and the miraculous supply of manna that came to the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's what would have come to their mind. I know that that's the case because of what happens next. Look at verse 13. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore, now listen to this, saw the sign which had been performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, there's an Old Testament passage that every dedicated Jew, and I believe most everyone in this crowd of people would have known about. It is a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses, in speaking to the nation of Israel, says this. He says, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you one of your own countrymen. Listen to what he has to say. I can assure you, that's what they have done. In fact, they are so convinced that Jesus is the prophet which Moses spoke about, that they are ready to make him king right there on the spot. They want Jesus to deliver them from the bondage that they have under the rule of Rome, just as Moses delivered the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Since this is the prophet Moses told us about, they would say, then this is our chance to finally be free. And they're excited. They want to make him king right then and there. But what they don't understand is that they can't have a king without the cross. Their bondage from Rome was nothing compared to their bondage to sin. Now, there was no question that Jesus had come to set them free. I think He wanted them 
to make this connection with Moses who delivered the people who trusted in him. In fact, Jesus is trying to tell them who he is, but the struggle that they're having is that they're too distracted by what they want him to be. We know that because the crowd continues to press him and to follow him till we get to to verse 26. and, And here we see Jesus really rebuke their misguided motivation. Look at chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. You see, the people saw the signs, it says. It says they actually ate the bread and they were filled. But they woke up hungry the next day because they still needed to be satisfied by a Savior they have yet to see. They were following Jesus because they wanted more food. But what they needed was forgiveness. And so Jesus tells them, work hard for the food that will not perish and look for the one whom God has approved. That is where you will be satisfied for all eternity. What we read in verse 28 reveals to us that all these people heard was work hard. Now, the reason is because that fit perfectly into the religious culture. It is a works-based system. So all they heard was work hard. And so they're already thinking, this is great. Work hard. We understand that. Give us the list so that we can follow it, and then we can be satisfied. But look at what Jesus says in verse 29. He answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, you cannot be satisfied by your own effort. You can only receive this gift of grace from the one whom God has sent to save you. And I am he. Honestly, I believe they make this connection. I believe they understand what Jesus is saying. Because what they do next is they make this connection to the prophet that Moses promised would come like him. And they ask Jesus, they say, okay, essentially, my paraphrase, if you're that prophet that Moses spoke of, then we want to see a greater sign. (laughs) A greater sign. They'd just been fed with five loaves. A greater sign. So Jesus says something to them. He says actually three things that is important. Let me read the passage and then we'll talk about it. Verse 32. Therefore, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore, give us that bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. First of all, Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that bread. God did. Secondly, 
what God has done in the past, He is doing for you right now here today. And the reason is, thirdly and most importantly, I am the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. And I have come not to satisfy a a crowd of 5,000, not to even satisfy a a nation of people. I have come to feed the world. And, And not so that you would be filled for a day or even for a lifetime. I have come so that you may be satisfied for all eternity. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now these are some powerful words in the context within which they were spoken. The people are making their pilgrimage for Passover, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They have Moses on their mind. They're intrigued by the miracles of Jesus. They remember that promise of a prophet like Moses. And then they make the connection between what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 and what Moses did when manna came from heaven. They wanted Jesus to deliver them from the bondage of Rome, but Jesus had come to deliver them from a prison of sin. They were asking for a conquering king, and Jesus was offering them eternal life through a sacrifice on the cross. And he used the the context of their circumstances to help them understand this very important attribute of who he is. It really was an invitation to be satisfied in the fellowship of a reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ as the bread of life. I am he who is. Now, as we've already said, it's really important to understand how God reveals himself as the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason that's important is because we can read these words, you and I today in this room, and know that they apply to us just as much as they did to the people he spoke to that day. And so we need to think about that. If Jesus is the bread of life, what does that mean for you and I? And I think to answer that question, it would be good to follow the connection that Jesus intended. That connection between the bread that came from heaven, the manna that fed the people in the wilderness, and who he is. So let's think about some of those attributes together. The first attribute that comes to my mind is the attribute that the bread that was, came to them from heaven, that manna from heaven, fed them only for that day. You remember? Do you remember what happened when they saw the manna that came from heaven and their first thought was, well, we've got to get enough of this to store up in case we go through some hard times and we can, we can live off the reserves, right? But what happened when they stored up the manna? It spoiled. It rotted. It only lasted for the day it had been given to them. Anything that was stored up longer than that rotted. It spoiled. And so instead of taking matters into their own hands, the Israelites had to trust that God would give them just what they needed as a daily provision. And I believe the same is true for you and I when we believe that Jesus is the bread of life. We are trusting that Jesus Christ is sufficient to meet our every need. We are expressing a humble dependence on his daily provision for our daily lives. In the moment, 
the moment we begin to take things into our own hands, perhaps out of the fear, if we're honest with ourselves, that, that God may not come through. So I need to do some stuff to, to, to create a reserve just in case we go through some lean times and he disappears for a while. And when that happens, when we take things into our own hands, that's when worry and anxiety replace peaceful trust. Like the disciples, we have been given the answer to our need. Jesus is the bread of life. The question is, how many more places are we going to be going to be satisfied before we realize that he's all we need? How many times are we going to wake up hungry, (laughs) filling our life with things that simply do not satisfy before we turn to Jesus to satisfy our longing? Because in the end, we have to be convinced that Jesus is enough. I love that saying, Jesus plus nothing. He's sufficient. You see, God faithfully sent down manna every day from heaven to feed the nation of Israel. And despite the fact that they were living in a barren wilderness, these people were well-fed and healthy. And yet, over time, what we know from the story is that they wanted more. Quite frankly, they got bored with bread, and so they began to complain and said, we want meat. We want meat. Scripture tells us that the whole congregation complained about their provisions, even going so far as to suggest that life in the bondage to Egypt was better than life under the daily provision of God's care. Now, is that crazy or what? But yet, how often we find ourselves in the very same crazy dilemma. What we have in Christ is always sufficient. And yet, sometimes we want more. He is so faithful to give us what we need, but sometimes it's not everything that we want. Because let's be honest, our our selfish appetite is never satisfied. Never. It's never enough. I can have a couch in my living room but be dissatisfied because it's not the right color, (laughs) right? I can have food on my table but be upset because it's not what I like to eat. I can have a a closet full of clothes but be upset because they're not the right fashion. Kids, I can have a closet full of toys but be dissatisfied because I see something in the magazine that I'd rather have. Jesus can give me all I need, and yet very often we're not satisfied with what we have because we want more. And not unlike the Israelites, and this is important, if our selfishness persists, we can come to the place where we wrongly convince ourselves that our old life was somehow better than our new life in Christ. We can look and say, oh man, back in the day when life was one big party, that was a good life. No, it wasn't. That was bondage. And yet how quickly we forget what it was like to be enslaved by our own selfish desires. How foolish it is, just like it was for the Israelites, when we long for the days when we lived in bondage to sin and selfish desires. When Jesus is the bread of life, he's truly all we need. And this conviction is what releases us from the burden of, to always strive for something more. 
Because true peace is found only when we live in the contentment of what we have. When Jesus is the bread of life, He gives us what we need. We're not missing out. And it is always more than enough. Do you remember what Jesus did in preparation for the Sabbath when they were in the wilderness and manna came down from heaven? Knowing that He wanted them to keep the Sabbath holy, He gave them a double portion on the day before the Sabbath so that they would have enough bread for two days. Now, as we've already said, when the people tried to collect bread on their own and save it up for themselves, it spoiled. <laughs> but when the abundance came from God, it was always good. Now, God desires for us to, to have blessings in our life in ways that are beyond what we could even ask or imagine. But our, own, our abundance is only good when it comes from God. Our abundance is only good when it comes from God. And He always intends for us to use that in a way that brings glory to His name. See, when we look at Jesus as, as the bread of life, His provisions are what give us the ability to walk in His ways. And only then do we experience the promise of the abundant life. Reminds me of a conversation that I had with someone recently. I appreciate their honesty as we were visiting together over lunch. And they said, you know... I'm not really sure I want to be fully committed to a walk with Christ because I'm not really convinced that I'm willing to, to give up some of the things that I really enjoy. I appreciated their honesty because what they were saying essentially was that I believe that if I become a devoted follower of Christ, that somehow I'm going to be missing out on something, right? But let me tell you something. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. The abundant life, the only abundant life, is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Outside of that, that's what leaves us wanting. If you don't believe me, go to Ecclesiastes and ask King Solomon. A man that experienced more of the good life than any of you, myself included, will ever experience in a lifetime. More money, more sex, more parties, more power. And in the end, what was his conclusion? Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. In other words, life is meaningless, empty, and unfulfilling. No matter how abundant it is, when we seek to be satisfied in things outside of a relationship with God. The Christian life is the only abundant life. God's provision is always more than enough. And we know for sure it's more than we deserve. I want us to finish up with the song. And as Mark comes forward with the team, let me just encourage you to do something. As we sing this song, some of you, these words will be uh, words of praise. You're going to sing this because this is your reality. You're listening to these words. You're singing these words. And you know that Jesus Christ is more than enough. Praise God. And you need to do that. I also know that some of you are in some difficult situations. And these are more words of prayer than they are praise. Because you're hurting. There are some things that you're staring at that you're thinking, I don't know how I can get through this. I've heard people say, even this week, I can't do this on my own. And you're right. You're right. So turn these words into a prayer and be convinced 
with what Jesus said when he says, I am more than enough. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Let's sing this together.